conclusion to the historic Yalta Conference as a plane carries President Roosevelt to Egypt to solidify ties in the Middle East. Then representing Saudi Arabia comes King Ibn Saud and a destroyer put at his disposal. The first U.S. vessel of its kind... For this episode, a little history. In February 1945, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt on his way back from his historic summit with Joseph Stalin and Winston Churchill at the Black Sea Resort of Yalta, stopped off in Cairo, Egypt. The purpose? To meet with the king of Saudi Arabia aboard an American naval cruiser, the USS Quincy, anchored in the Great Bitter Lake in the Suez Canal. Most Americans have never heard about the USS Quincy. I can tell you every Saudi knows what the USS Quincy was. Bruce Rydell spent 30 years as a Mideast analyst for the CIA. President Franklin Roosevelt, even in the midst of the Second World War, was looking ahead to the world after the war. Uh, And he recognized early on uh, that oil uh, was now the key to modern technology. And as he looked around the world, the largest deposit of oil in the world was in Saudi Arabia. And he decided, therefore, that he needed to build a relationship with Saudi Arabia for the post-World War. Few world leaders were less alike than FDR and Ibn Saud. Roosevelt, of course, was the scion of a blue-blood New York family who had mastered the arts of American politics. To bolster public support for entering World War II, he had portrayed the conflict as a global crusade to advance the cause of human freedom. We look forward to a world-founded upon four essential human freedoms. The first is freedom of speech and expression everywhere in the world. The second is freedom of every person to worship God in his own way everywhere in the world. The third is freedom from want. And then there was Ibn Saud, the absolute monarch of a country that recognized none of Roosevelt's freedoms, a land where there was no right to practice any religion other than Islam, where slavery was widespread and fully legal, where women had no rights at all. For this, his first trip ever outside of his kingdom, Ibn Saud arrived in Egypt with a vast and colorful entourage. There were swordsmen, astrologers, and slaves to cook meals from the herd of 100 sheep brought on board for ritual slaughter. And yet, FDR, ever the charmer, pulled out all the stops. FDR went out of his way to make this meeting as convivial as possible. FDR was a chain smoker. He didn't smoke in the king's presence. At one point, they broke briefly, and FDR went into an elevator on the Quincy and quickly smoked two cigarettes. He didn't have any wine with lunch. FDR, of course, was famous Cocktail hour. On at least one item on FDR's agenda, however, Ibn Saud was completely uncooperative. Roosevelt had hoped to get the king's agreement for the creation of a Jewish homeland in neighboring Palestine, a haven for the persecuted Jews of Europe, millions of whom had been massacred in Nazi concentration camps. But Ibn Saud, protector of the holy mosques of Islam, would have none of it. Let the Jews go back to Germany and create a Jewish state there, he argued. Make the enemy and the oppressor pay. That is how we Arabs wage war, he told Roosevelt. That setback aside, the first ever meeting between an American president and a Saudi king was hailed a success. The king and the president were eager to look past their differences because each had something the other wanted. 
The Saudis had oil, and they would let the Americans develop their oil fields and extract it. For their part, the Americans had weapons, and they would help provide security for the Saudi kingdom. FDR gave the green light to a deal U.S. officials had worked out with one of the king's sons, then Crown Prince Faisal, during a trip to Washington the year before. This was to develop an American airbase in Dharan, Saudi Arabia. And as a parting gift for the voyage home, U.S. Navy officers gave the king a pair of Navy binoculars and two submachine guns, signaling the birth of a grand new bargain in global affairs. They did ratify the implicit understanding that had already been reached in 1943 that the United States would provide Saudi Arabia with security in return for access to energy at reasonable prices. Um, Arms for oil. Arms for oil, right there. Arms for oil. Simple, as obvious as can be. No fiddling around with the edges. Arms for oil. It was the core deal that would shape the U.S.-Saudi relationship through 14 presidents and six Saudi kings over the next 70 years, right up to the days of Donald Trump. Saudi Arabia has been uh, a very great friend and a big purchaser of equipment and lots of other things, and one of the biggest... One of King Ibn Saud's grandsons, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, had just arrived at the White House for an Oval Office meeting in March of 2018. And Trump, in front of the TV cameras, held up poster boards of giant weapons purchases the Saudis had promised to make. Six billion dollars, that's for frigates. Uh, 889 million, 63 million and that's uh, for various artillery. I have to say, in the, in the four years of Donald Trump's embarrassing moments, holding up those uh, poster boards of American arms for sale uh, is an iconic moment. The C-130 heli- uh, uh, airplanes, the Hercules, great plane, $3.8 billion. The Bradley vehicles, That's the tanks, $1.2 billion. Yes, every American president tries to sell arms to foreign countries. Few do it with poster boards. And if they do do it with a poster board, they don't do it while the press is in the room taking a picture of it. And we really have a great friendship, a great relationship. I would really have to say... The U.S.-Saudi relationship would be tested many times over the years, by the Saudis' intransigence over Israel, of course, by their efforts at using oil as a weapon, by their worldwide promotion of a strict and tolerant strain of Islam that inspired multiple acts of terrorism, and by their periodic brutal crackdowns on dissent that led ultimately to the grisly murder of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi a crime the CIA found that was authorized by the same Ibn Saud grandson who was welcomed by Trump at the White House. And yet the alliance has endured because of that core arms-for-oil bargain that was forged aboard the USS Quincy, a crass transactional deal that years later U.S. officials concluded was not worth disrupting, even when the Saudis assassinated a journalist for an American newspaper. And it turns out there is a strange, ironic twist to this story. Nobody did more to nurture that arms-for-oil relationship than a member of Jamal Khashoggi's own family. I'm talking here about Adnan Khashoggi, a notorious arms dealer, and Jamal's cousin. He was a charming, if irredeemably corrupt, super-rich playboy who for a while was the most conspicuous public face of Saudi Arabia. 
It's a fascinating story and one that would ultimately cause deep embarrassment for Jamal and the rest of his family. And there's another reason the story of Adnan Khashoggi is important. Through some convoluted financial dealings, it would also result in the president who warmly greeted MBS to the White House getting his first introduction to the awesome power of Saudi luxury and largesse. Is that well, what I bought a boat from Adnan Khashoggi, which was formerly called the Nabila. Nabila. It's a yacht. And Adnan was, Khashoggi, excuse me for a second, is the, is the world's largest arms trader? I hate to admit it, but... Now, what are those guys like? Oh, they're real, real sweethearts, I have to think. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Michael Isikoff. Welcome back to Conspiracy Land, The Secret Lives and Brutal Death of Jamal Khashoggi. This is Episode 2, The Arms Dealer's Harem. How lavish a lifestyle would you lead if you were the richest man on earth? In this world-exclusive edition of Lifestyles, we'll explore the fabulous private domains of Adnan Khashoggi, whose globe-trotting existence is so unbelievably lush, it has inspired blockbuster movies and novels, which only pale in comparison to the true story you will see in the next 60 minutes. That's celebrity interviewer Robin Leach introducing a special episode of his popular 1980s show, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, an hour-long tribute to Jamal Khashoggi's cousin, Adnan Khashoggi. Cousin Adnan was the son of the chief royal physician to the first king of Saudi Arabia, Ibn Saud. Like many Saudis, he went to college in the United States at Chico State University in California, where he first learned to appreciate alcohol and pretty coeds. By the time of Leach's broadcast, he had become an outside personality on the world stage, a billionaire arms dealer whose gargantuan appetites and sybaritic tastes drew in movie stars, politicians, and corporate moguls. Even while it sullied his country's image and, as we shall see, appears to have had a profound impact on Jamal. And yet Adnan Khashoggi also played a crucial role in helping to forge a U.S.-Saudi relationship that brought huge profits to American oil companies and defense contractors and fantastic wealth to Saudi royals and Khashoggi himself, with the skids greased by generous offerings of bribes, kickbacks, and stunningly gorgeous women. It was a wild ride until it all blew up, in part due to his walk-in role in one of America's biggest political scandals. Well, today, Khashoggi is pretty much forgotten. And at the same time, it's just wonderful to go back and recollect how he operated and what an amazing kingdom he created. Ron Kessler, a former investigative reporter for The Washington Post, wrote a biography of Adnan Khashoggi in the mid-1980s that he titled The Richest Man in the World. Khashoggi is an example of how Saudi Arabia was able to become an ally of the United States. And that's really the legacy of Adnan Khashoggi, that he pioneered this relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. At his peak, Adnan Khashoggi presided over an empire that included 12 estates, including a 180,000-acre ranch in Kenya and a spectacular mountaintop villa on Spain's Costa del Sol. Not to mention his yacht, the Nabila, that was so over the top it was borrowed for the James Bond film Never Say Never Again. It was a floating $70 million luxury palace that got considerable attention during Robin Leach's broadcast. It's the ultimate toy and status symbol, with engineering rivaling any naval destroyer on the seas. His 325-foot yacht travels at 21 knots and has its own fully equipped hospital, movie theater with 800 films, 
disco nightclub, and 11 VIP suites. In the course of reporting his biography, Kessler got rare access to Adnan Khashoggi's world and came away somewhat wowed. Khashoggi would enhance his power and his connections and his influence by throwing these spectacular parties, one of which I went to. It was his uh, 50th birthday party in Marbella, Spain. And uh, Brooke Shields was there and Sean Connery, uh, European royalty. I remember bumping asses with Brooke Shields on the dance floor. They had these incredible animals, pumas, and uh, the party went until 9 a.m. And this was one way that Khashoggi forged his relationships between Saudi Arabia and the U.S. How exactly did Anand Khashoggi make all his money? It was, federal investigators later concluded, a method rife with raw corruption. Khashoggi was a middleman who brokered giant weapons deals, raking off hundreds of millions of dollars in commissions from big U.S. defense contractors like Lockheed and Northrop. The funds were then routed through Swiss bank accounts, first lining Khashoggi's pockets, and then used to pay off bribes to members of the Saudi royal family. Khashoggi was the emissary of the king. He was designated as the emissary. And so he would kick back some of the commissions from the American companies directly to the king, as well as to the Saudi defense minister and princes. And everyone was happy. The king was happy. He got his money. Khashoggi got his cut. And of course, Khashoggi spent it as if he was the richest man in the world. The spectacular wealth, the display, the parties all attracted business. It was like bees around honey. They all wanted to be part of it. It was really an incredible episode in history. Uh, Well, he told me that he had negotiation tools. Jill Dodd gleaned her own unique insight into Adnan Khashoggi's world and how he did business when she began a sexual relationship with the Saudi mogul one of a bevy of attractive young women who became part of his globe-trotting entourage. And um, he did have women that would be hired and they would sleep with his, I should say, his negotiation opponent, perhaps, or the men that he was going to be doing business with. And he would pretty much spoil them, lavish them with champagne and Coke and women. And by the time they would meet the next day, Adnan would have been briefed by the women, whatever information they could tell him. And it was manipulative to get them right where he wanted them to negotiate. Dodd, a California native, met Khashoggi when she was a 20-year-old model working in Paris. Out of the blue, her agent invited her to a gala party he was throwing on the beach in Monte Carlo. And even though she had no idea who Khashoggi was or why she was invited, she jumped at the chance. She soon found herself in the middle of a fantastical scene surrounded by actors dressed as pirates while she danced on the beach with a short, pudgy man who turned out to be the billionaire arms merchant himself. He pushed up my sleeve of my shirt and wrote, I love you in blood down my arm (laughs) because he'd cut himself with some glass. He wrote, I love you in blood on your arm. Right. He did. (laughs) what did you make of that well it was shocking it was definitely shocking 
A few weeks later, their relationship was cemented when Khashoggi, then 44, flew Jill to his Marbella villa, offered her cocaine in a rolled-up $100 bill, and made an unusual proposal. Okay, so Adnan wanted asked me if asked me to be his pleasure wife, and he kind of set up all the rules, saying that I couldn't date anyone from Saudi Arabia where he was from, but if I wanted to, I could see other men that weren't from Saudi Arabia. I mean, here you are, 20-year-old from California, and the and this fabulously wealthy Saudi Arabian man tells you I. He wants you to be his pleasure wife. What did you think? What goes through your mind? Right. I didn't understand what it meant, honestly. You know, this is the first time I'd ever heard of anything like that. So I was extremely naive and gullible and innocent. So you have to factor that in as well. As she later related in a little-noticed memoir she called The Currency of Love, Jill Dodd spent the next year and a half flying around the world on Khashoggi's jet. She joined him on safaris in Africa, gambling in Las Vegas, where the stakes ran into hundreds of thousands of dollars per hand, partying in Spain, doing coke, making love. But the relationship began to sour when one night in Las Vegas... You know, we had this incredible romantic dinner and he wrote a song for me and he it was played by a guy on a violin and he took me back to his suite and gave me this I thought it was going to be an, an engagement ring and it was just this small little ring with a heart and some an arrow of diamonds going through it and then a few days later or a week later I can't remember I was out at a Paul Anka concert with a group of girls and one of the girls showed me this ring that she'd been given by Adnan and it was the exact ring he had given me. And it was like a knife through my heart. So I think that was the first time that I really realized I was part of a harem. And harem was never a word that was used at that time to to describe it, but that's what it was. An even crueler blow came soon thereafter when Jill witnessed an unsettling scene involving Khashoggi and a man she calls Dominic. He was a steady sidekick of the Saudi mogul, who Jill says she came to realize was basically her pleasure husband's pimp. Yes. um, Towards the end of our relationship, I saw he and Dominic flipping through a notebook of model composites, and Adnan was deciding who he wanted to meet and Dominic was telling him what the prices were to meet these different women. It prompted Jill to think back on how she came to meet Khashoggi in the first place, why it was that her agent had invited her to attend that wild pirate-themed party in Monte Carlo. And then it took a long time to come to the realization and be able to accept the fact that I had been sold without my knowledge. So I was sold, like a prostitute would be sold. So that hit me hard. And so it took years and years to try to heal from it. It was like an open sore to realize that as a young woman, I was sold. Jill Dodd broke off her relationship with Anand Khashoggi and later went on to a successful career in the fashion business. 
In the years that followed, Khashoggi's empire began to unravel, the result of multiple investigations by U.S. authorities and over-the-top spending sprees. His U.S.-based holding company, Triad America, filed for bankruptcy. And in 1987, Khashoggi was outed as a behind-the-scenes player in a political scandal that rocked the country. The hearing will please come to order. The scandal was Iran-Contra, the secret sale of arms to Iran, with the profits diverted by Ronald Reagan's White House to fund an illegal war to overthrow the leftist Sandinista government in Nicaragua. It was a real-life conspiracy, and Adnan Khashoggi was in on it from the start. He fronted more than $7 million to another shady arms dealer named Manukar Garbanifar, who had hatched the scheme. Richard Secord, a former Air Force officer who helped arrange the covert arms sales for White House aide Oliver North, described it in this congressional testimony. Yes, uh, it seemed like uh, everything uh, bad was happening in this, in this time frame. Uh, I learned after the Tehran meeting that uh, Gorbanifar claimed uh, that he uh, was dealing with financiers and he named uh, Saudi uh, Adnan Khashoggi as, as being one of his uh, financiers and had been, been doing so all along. The, the, uh, apparently, the Israelis knew this. I did not know it. And when Khashoggi did not get reimbursed, he made it clear to Gobanifar that he was not a happy camper. Here's Secord again, testifying before one of his congressional inquisitors, John Neal's, a counsel to the Iran-Contra committee. Well, eventually, uh, I think according to your prior testimony, he claimed that he had never been fully paid for the, for the arms and consequently had not been able to reimburse uh, Mr. Khashoggi, and Mr. Khashoggi threatened to uh, expose the entire operation. That's correct. Khashoggi was never charged with any crimes in the Iran-Contra scandal, but his legal and financial troubles were only beginning. In 1988, he was arrested in Switzerland and extradited to the United States, charged with concealing assets for Imelda Marcos, including paintings by El Greco and Rubens. Khashoggi beat the rap, but as his funds began to dry up, he started unloading some of his high-priced assets. He sold his treasured yacht, the Nabila, first briefly turning it over to one of his creditors, the Sultan of Brunei, before it wound up in the hands of a brash New York real estate developer who envied the Saudi playboy's lifestyle. I feel very strong. It's considered the ultimate in boats and yachts and whatever it is. Donald Trump got a lot of mileage in those days talking about his ownership of Khashoggi's boat, as in this appearance on The David Letterman Show. Publicity about your acquisition of the boat this summer. The Princess? Is that well, what I call it? I bought a boat from Adnan Khashoggi, which was formerly called the Nabila. You know, he spent probably $200 million on building this yacht. Probably the greatest yacht ever built. It's really been a great kind of an investment. It's been fun. But not that great an investment. Just a few years later, Trump was filing for bankruptcy himself over his floundering Atlantic City casinos. This prompted him to turn to yet another super-wealthy Saudi to help bail him out, Prince Al-Walid bin Talal, a powerful member of the royal family who bought Khashoggi's yacht from Trump in 1991 for $20 million. It was Trump's first introduction to the redeeming power of Saudi wealth and influence, and the start of a relationship that would continue for decades as rich Saudis pumped millions into his condos and apartments. In June 2001, three months before 9-11, the Saudi government paid him $4.5 million to buy the entire 45th floor of the Trump Tower in New York, eventually turning it into the offices for the country's United Nations mission. 
It was a money flow that the real estate mogul never forgot, even when he was running for president. Saudi Arabia, and I get along great with all of them. They buy apartments from me, they spend 40 million, 50 million. Am I supposed to dislike them? I like them. Whole books have been written, including one co-authored by me, that explore Trump's financial ties to Russia and his efforts to do business in that country. But in retrospect, his financial ties to the Saudis may have been just as significant and certainly more transparent. They spend so much money. Am I going to dislike them? I love them. The problem is, and I say it all the time, their leaders are really smart. They're really cunning. They're really sharp. And we have dummies, right? We have dummies. We have dummies. Anand Khashoggi died in 2017 at the age of 81, having suffered from Parkinson's disease largely forgotten by the outside world. But he left a legacy that is important to our story. The New York Times, in its obit, described him as his country's principal link to the American arms industry, even while noting what the paper called displays of decadence that were breathtaking even by the standards of that era. And over time, those excesses proved an embarrassment to many of his fellow countrymen, and to perhaps no one more so than his younger cousin Jamal. The two knew each other from family gatherings during religious holidays, and Jamal attended Adnan's funeral and burial in an unmarked grave outside the Grand Mosque in Medina. But Jamal would tell Hanan Alatur, a flight attendant who he married in an Islamic ceremony in the spring of 2018, that he disapproved of his cousin's lifestyle and what he represented. He didn't go deep, but he said he's not very happy about his reputation, about his performance. He wasn't happy about the end of Adnan because Adnan, he lost all of his money. He he died poor and sick. Yeah. Jamal even frowned on one of Adnan's minor picadillos, his consultations with an astrologer from India. And uh, Jamal, he said, no, it's not acceptable. Some of Adnan's behavior is not acceptable in our culture and our, our religion. Like Adnan, there were other members of Jamal Khashoggi's family that embraced a life of luxury and global jet-setting. Most notably, there was another cousin, Dodi Al-Fayed, who would famously romance Princess Diana and die with her in that 1997 car crash in Paris. But Jamal Khashoggi would pursue a very different course. As a young aspiring journalist, his path would take him as far away from luxury as you can imagine, into the caves of Afghanistan with a fellow countryman who would emerge as the most notorious terrorist of the 21st century. Next on Conspiracy Land. How many times do you think that you spent with Bin Laden? Oh, I don't know. Many, many times. I spent uh, travels with him. I stayed in his camps, uh, slept in the same cave in Afghanistan. Jamal develops a bond with Osama Bin Laden and a taste for jihad against the Soviets. And then years later, Jamal is selected for a secret mission to entice bin Laden to renounce violence and return to the Saudi fold. I would say to him, Osama, you should be aware that people, Saudi people, will be afraid to be seen with you in public. Uh-huh. What, why don't you see that? Mm-hmm. Again, he will just put that smile, that famous smile on his face. He doesn't realize what he has done or become. That's next on Conspiracy Land, Episode 3, Jamal and Osama.
Conspiracy Land is a production of Skullduggery, the Yahoo News podcast I co-host every week with Yahoo News Editor-in-Chief Dan Clydman and the Brennan Center's Victoria Bassetti. In putting together this series, special thanks to Suzanne Smalley for yeoman's research and tracking down sometimes elusive interview subjects. And as with our past Conspiracy Land productions, a huge shout-out to the folks at Long Story Short, Executive producer Bob Ewell, associate producer Emily Russell, and editor Andrew Strassel, with audio recording and mixing by Aaron Hoffman and Evan Sevilla, and research by Josh Hall and Belinda Shaw. And, of course, LSS Chief Jessica Stewart. None of this could have happened without their invaluable work.